0: Welcome, and thanks for joining us at the Central Baptist Church Victoria podcast. In this series, we discover that God
1: has provided everything we need for life and godliness. Based in 2 Peter 1, we will
0: explore God's invitation to participate in his divine nature and ways that we can cultivate a fullness of life. Here's today's message. Good morning. Today's scripture reading comes from 2 Peter 1, verses 3 to 11 and it's going to be a responsive reading. So I will read the verses in white, and I'll invite you to please join in for the verses in yellow. This is Second Peter 1, verses 3 to 11. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these he has given us his very great and precious promises, so that through them you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and to goodness knowledge, and to knowledge self-control, and to self-control, perseverance, and to perseverance, godliness, and to godliness, mutual affection, and to mutual affection, love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But whoever does not have them is nearsighted and blind, forgetting that they have been cleansed from their past sins. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, make every effort to confirm your calling and election. For if you do these things, you will never stumble, and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you
1: so much, John, and thank you for participating in the reading. You perhaps are familiar, if you've been here over the weeks, I hope you're familiar with those words that we read together. Throughout these Summer Sundays, we've been living into this passage, seeking to understand it, seeking to take it on board. And for those of you who've been here over these last few weeks, I have a pop quiz today. Not too hard. So we've been learning that God's divine power has given us everything we need for what? For a godly life. Okay, let's think about that. So how do we get this godly life according to the rest of this verse? Do we get this godly life by trying harder to be godly? What does the verse tell us? His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through what? Through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Sermon in a nutshell, we don't become godly by trying, to be, trying harder to be godly. Peter wants to tell us we become godly by knowing Jesus more, by loving him more. Let's jump down to verse five, which we also read, which says, his, for this very reason, We skipped over verse four here, which contains these incredibly great promises from God. But Peter says to us in verse five, for this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith or to supplement your faith with, and we've been looking each week at one of these qualities, and so here's what we've gone through so far. So cultivate, we've suggested, goodness in the soil of faith. So the faith is like the soil that's growing all of these characteristics in us. First one was goodness, and to goodness we added knowledge, and to knowledge we added self-control, and to self-control we added perseverance. Well, today we come to this word godliness, and Peter's saying to us, make every effort to supplement your faith with godliness, to add to your faith godliness, to cultivate your faith so that godliness grows in you. So the question we're asking ourselves this morning is, well, what is godliness, and how do I cultivate it so it becomes more and more a part of who I am? Let's break our conversation down once again into four headings. We will start with the definition, the meaning of godliness. Then I wanna talk about the secret of godliness And then I want to go to the critical role of godliness, and we'll end with what I'm calling the challenge of godliness. So it's the meaning, then the secret of godliness, the critical role of godliness, and the challenge of godliness. Let's start with the meaning, definition. We've seen over the past couple of weeks that as Peter's writing this list of characteristics with some of them, he is borrowing words from Greek philosophy. Right, so the Greeks talked about self-control. The Greeks talked about knowledge. And we discover the Greeks also talked about godliness. So let's go back and try to understand a little bit about when a, when a person in, 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 in Greek culture and later in Roman culture talked about godliness, what were they talking about? I came across an article written last year in January by a man by the name of Chris Hocklitube. I don't know if I pronounced his name right, but he wrote an article called Piety or Godliness in Early Christianity and the Roman World. And he describes, he's done research and has described how the Romans and the Greeks used this term godly and what it came to, to mean. And so he suggests that by the beginning of the very first century, and so let me just remind us, this is before the New Testament's written. The beginning of the first century, Paul, Peter probably wrote Second Peter in 60-65 AD or so. So this is before the writing of the New Testament, the Greeks were talking about piety and godliness, and this is the definition that this man suggests. So godliness, or piety, came to entail the dutiful fulfillment of one's obligations to one's household, homeland, and gods. Okay, let's just pause there, make sure we're taking that on board, shall we? So what, is, what does a godly person look like in, in the Roman Empire? A godly person is someone who is, who is responsible and, and carries out their duties, their obligations in these three areas, to our household, family relationships, to our homeland, being part of the empire, but also to one's gods, right? In the Greek pantheon of gods they were referring to probably in that day. Okay, but the definition goes on. It could also describe one's respectful attitude toward and treatment of the dead and guests. A little funny story here. When I first read this, I didn't see the comma between dead and guests. <laughs> wasn't sure what he was going on about there. But here's what godliness in the Roman Empire meant. It was this respectful attitude toward and the treatment of those who have passed on, of the guests who come to your house for hospitality, of your hosts who receive you in their homes for hospitality, and to supplicants. Supplicants are simply people who ask for something. So maybe it's a beggar on the street, or maybe it's someone who just is in desperate needs and needs something that you have. That's a supplicant. And the word godly also would describe the idea of keeping an oath. So, how do we summarize that? We might say then a person who is called godly in the Roman Empire was someone who was responsible to fulfill their expected duties, one who was respectful of authority, but most important, listen to this, one who lived consistently with their belief about the gods. Right? So they lived what they believed about the gods. It's a person who kept his or her word. Let's go to another source for a definition and Richard Bachman, once again, in the word biblical commentary, helps to build a bridge between Roman usage and later Christian usage. Let me put this on the screen. Uh, Richard Bachman suggests this word, denotes piety toward the gods, right? Again, in Roman Empire days, this is what that would mean. Piety or respect towards the God, believing in in who they're claiming to be. But also, and especially in Jewish and Christian usage, it's the respect for, capital G, God's will, and the moral way of life, which are inseparable from the proper religious attitude toward God. So please note with me what we learned so far. The idea of godliness, the idea of godliness points to how we live, how we behave, our actions, our choices, our decisions, our reactions. In particular, we would say a godly person is a person who lives and behaves in a way that's consistent with what they believe particularly about the gods or, in a Christian setting, about God, as he's revealed himself to us. And so, therefore, if I'm to ascertain whether or not I am living a godly life, I ask myself, does my character line up fully with what I believe about who God is? And do my actions, attitudes, reactions, do they also line up with what I believe about God as to how he's revealed himself. A man by the name of A.W. Tozer wrote a book many years ago now called The Knowledge of the Holy and he quite famously now opened that book with this saying, A.W. Tozer suggested this, about every person, what comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Please look at Baucom's definition again on the screen. I think in this definition we see Tozer's words lived out. So for example, if I'm a Roman citizen and I believe in a pantheon of many Greek gods, if I'm a godly Roman citizen, my character and my conduct will be shaped by what I believe about those gods. Now, we know, of course, from reading through history, that there were many people in the Roman Empire that we would not call godly, right? So they would be people who perhaps gave mental assent to the reality, the presence of the gods, but their lives were were not directed or informed by that. They lived according to their own passions, their own lusts, their own desires, their own selfish ambitions, perhaps paying lip service to the gods, but we wouldn't call these people godly. Well, let's move from the Roman Empire to today, because isn't it true today that that's actually true of all religions in the world? There are many people who adhere to religions but don't live according to what they believe. It's also true of Christian faith. Many people call themselves Christians. Many people come to church regularly, but they do not allow the teachings of Scripture, the teaching of God as he's revealed himself to us to fully inform their actions, their attitudes, their desires, their reactions. And so it's kind of a Sunday thing, but the rest of the week they're on their own. Well... Let's try to summarize all that and try to come up with our own homegrown definition of godliness. And I'll put this on the screen uh, just to try to summarize where we've been. Let's suggest that to be godly then, to be godly is to bring the revealed truth about the eternal God of the universe that we discover in scripture into the very center of who we are so that every thought, every word, every attitude, every decision, every action is informed by what we believe about who God is and how he's revealed himself. Okay, how does that sit with you? Does it seem a little daunting, perhaps? Let me say this as bluntly as I can, This is not just daunting, it's impossible. It's absolutely impossible, I wanna suggest, argue with me after if you like on this, but I believe it's absolutely impossible, listen to this, strictly by human effort, for you and me to attain to the full level of godliness assumed in this definition. It's impossible. And yet, Peter, in this passage here, is calling to us and he's saying, make every effort to add to your faith godliness. And furthermore, he's even saying to us, his divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life. So how does all this work, you ask? What is the secret to godliness? Well, I'm very glad you asked, because that's the next point. What is the secret of godliness? Let me invite you to turn back in your Bibles to the writings of Paul, specifically to 1 Timothy. What we find in the words of Timothy, actually in Timothy and Titus, what these three books that are called the pastoral epistles in the New Testament is where we find the word godly most often used. Paul has a real passion to teach Timothy in particular about what godliness is and how it lives out in the church. But please come with me specifically to 1 Timothy chapter 3. And I would encourage you, if you have your Bibles to turn there or open it on your device, Um, Because while some of the verses will be on the screen, there's many that will not. And honestly, these chapters, and particularly 1 Timothy 3, is an incredible chapter uh, in the discussion of godliness. But come with me, first of all, to 1 Timothy 3, verse 16. And I want to suggest this is an astounding passage, an astounding verse about godliness, and many commentaries see this as kind of the real center of Paul's description of godliness to Timothy. So we see this in the first part of 1 Timothy 3, verse 16. It says this, beyond all question, the mystery, or the secret, from which true godliness springs is great. Right, so this is the first part of the verse. The mystery, or the secret, from which true godliness springs is great. And there's a colon there, actually. So this is the NIV translation of this verse. One commentator calls this verse the revealed secret of religion, or the mystery of Christianity. That's a remarkable claim. Paul is about to say something huge here, and this phrase is introducing it. Perhaps if you have the ESV translation, you can read it, it says this, great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. In the message translation, Eugene Peterson suggests this, the Christian life is a great mystery, far exceeding our understanding, but some things are clear enough. All of this is introductory to, the, to what's coming in this verse. And so, with bated breath, we ask, so, Paul, what is it that is the secret from which to God true godliness springs? And Paul, rather dramatically, breaks into song. Here's the six lines of this song right here. I don't know the tune, so I won't sing it for you. But listen carefully to the words of this hymn. He appeared in the flesh. He was vindicated by the spirit. He was seen by angels. He was preached among the nations. He was believed on in the world and he was taken up in glory. Amazing Him. we don't have time to do a deep dive into all of these phrases. Let me simply, simply ask you this, whose story is this? Whose story is this? It's the story of Jesus. The story of Jesus is the secret from which true godliness springs. You remember our verse at the top, through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. But how does it work? Let me briefly just look at the second phrase of this hymn where it says he was vindicated by the Spirit. Jesus was vindicated by the Spirit. Let me ask this question. Who was it that led Jesus into the wilderness following his baptism? It was the Spirit, right? Luke 4 tells us the Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness. And what happened in the wilderness? In the wilderness Jesus proved himself to be the only human in the history of the world to 100% successfully repel the temptation to evil. Right? It's a contrast to Genesis chapter three where we humans, we we succumb to the temptation to evil. Jesus in the garden is vindicated by the spirit. It's in the garden where Jesus 100% successfully repels the temptations of the evil one, so that the writer of Hebrews can later say to us, he was tempted as we are, but yet without sin. Jesus, my friends, is the only 100% godly human that's ever lived on this earth. And at the center of the story the Bible then, he is the only one, the only worthy one, who could offer his life as a sacrifice to pay for my ungodliness, to pay for your ungodliness, to pay for our sin, and to give us the gift of eternal life. So how is it that the story of Jesus becomes the secret from which true godliness springs? Let me suggest two ways. First of all, by faith, this is the story of the Bible, my friends, by faith in Jesus, we receive what I would like to call the gift of positional holiness. What's that mean? Positional holiness means that when Jesus died, he died for me. When I receive that gift of believing and receiving his salvation, then when God looks at me, he looks through Jesus and he sees me as perfectly righteous, perfectly godly, not because of who I am, but because of who Jesus is and what he did for me. So we receive this gift of positional holiness But secondly, I wanna suggest, and what Peter's going on about here in 2 Peter 3, is that once we receive this gift through faith, then in the soil of that faith, we seek to cultivate godliness as we continue to live in our broken bodies in a broken world, and we seek to live into the gift that we have received. The source of godliness is not that effort. The source of godliness is the work that Jesus has already done. Peter says, make every effort to add to that faith, to let it grow, this godliness. My friends, the Bible nowhere imagines followers of Jesus as simply people who adhere to a particular set of beliefs or practice a certain set of rituals. Peter, Paul, Jesus, all of the the biblical writers call us to experience a fullness of life as God created it to be, a godly life that is fully informed and shaped by our faith in Jesus. Okay, in an effort to get as practical as we can, let's turn quickly to our last two points. First of all, the critical role of godliness, and secondly, the challenge of godliness. First of all, the critical role. We want to stay in First Timothy here. Uh, we looked at verse... Uh, 16. I just want to go back up two verses. Look at look what Peter how Peter introduces verse 16 here. And for, Paul is introducing this to Timothy. First Timothy 3:14 says this: Although I hope to come to you soon in Ephesus where you are, Timothy, I'm writing these instructions to you so that if I'm delayed, look carefully at these words. You will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. This is the critical role of godliness. Notice two roles in this text. First of all, it's the role of the people. You will know how people ought to conduct themselves, Paul says. Paul's main concern in writing to Timothy at this church in Ephesus is to help him as a young leader to promote godliness in the congregation, among the people, to help people become more and more godly. If you look at the top of the chapter, you'll see that at the, in those verses, Paul is very specific and concrete, is saying, People who you appoint as leaders in the church must be godly, right? They must have godly character, godly actions, godly behavior, because godliness is important, even more important in that sense than having correct doctrine. We want leaders who are godly, is what Paul is saying to Peter. And and now we come down to this verse, and we discover that conduct of godliness is not just for the leaders. It's also for all the people. But why? Why is it that Paul says conduct and behavior is so important? Well, here we turn to the second role that we find in this verse, and it's the role of the church. This is amazing. Look at what he says here. What is the role of the church in the world? We're part of God's household, which is the church of the living God. Which is what? It's the pillar and foundation of the truth. This is actually very astounding. How does the church become the pillar and foundation of the truth in the world? How does Paul say in this verse, specifically, that the church should become the pillar and foundation of truth in the world? It's not, he says in this verse, by writing strong doctrinal statements, though that's not unimportant. And it's not, Paul says, by waving placards and protesting loudly against all the evils in the world around us and becoming the pillar and foundation of the truth that way. What is the way we become the pillar and foundation of the truth? It's by our conduct, it's by the way we relate to each other, it's by our godliness. It's by us allowing the truth of who we believe God is to live out consistently in our character. And so we might think of some questions to consider. Does the way that I speak to or treat to my wife or my husband or my children, does that reflect the loving godliness of Jesus to the world? What about the way I react to a verbal attack or an assassination of character or injustice that's done to me? Does my reaction to that reflect the godliness of Jesus to the world? Does the way I express my anger or sadness or frustration reflect the godliness of Jesus? It's not that we shouldn't express anger, Jesus did, or frustration, but how do we do that? Are we informed in our actions by what we believe in the godliness of Jesus? What about in our sexual lives? Does the way I think and act in this very strong, powerful appetite that God has given us in this very strong area of our lives, does that also reflect the godliness of Jesus? The questions of course could go on and on because godliness means that I allow the beautiful character of Jesus to flow through every part of who I am and how I live. But let's turn now in the final instance to the challenge of godliness because it seems hard, right? It's hard to be godly for lots of reasons and I think there's lots of reasons we could go into but I'd like to just notice one factor which makes the practice of godliness difficult. And that factor is the context in which we live. We live in a world where evil is rampant. In some cases, where evil is increasingly accepted as normal, we live, my friends, in a spiritual battle zone. I'd like to read some more of Paul's words to Timothy which show that the struggles we have in our culture, in our place, in our time in history, are, are not unique to us. I'd like to read to you some words from Second Timothy 3 In 2 Timothy 3, Paul is writing to Timothy again. He says this, mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. The last days, we're still living in the last days. I think the New Testament writers thought of their times as the last days looking forward to the return of Jesus. We're still in those days. But listen to Paul's very stark description of how world, people, culture can be against God and His ways. Verse two, 2 Timothy three, people will be lovers of themselves. Lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of good, treacherous, rash, conceited. Lovers of pleasure, rather than lovers of God. And then notice what Paul says here, having a form of godliness but denying its power. Have nothing to do with such people, Paul says to Timothy. This is a very curious list. I don't know how you felt as, you, as I read those words. I, as I read through those words, I, I can feel some of those words are areas that describe my own battle in some areas of life. And yet I also see how these words describe the waves of anti-God attitudes in the world around us. And the stronger the opposition becomes and the more devious the deceptions become, the harder it is for us as followers of Jesus to stand for what is godly. I'd like to read a few more words from 2 Timothy 3. Paul to Timothy, these words contain a blunt message of truth, but they're followed by some strong words of encouragement. Pick it up at verse 12 of 2 Timothy 3. Paul says to Timothy, in fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. While evildoers and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But, but, and we need to hear this message from Paul to Timothy for us. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of your your idea of who God is and how he's revealed himself because you know those from whom you learned it and how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. All scripture, Paul says, is God-breathed And it's useful for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. I'd like to ask the music team to come back to the front. Godliness is difficult, I believe. For us to keep on consistently living out what we believe as God has revealed himself to us. But Paul says to Timothy, continue in what you've learned. It sounds an awful lot like perseverance that we talked about last week. There we noticed that the key element to help us persevere is this idea of hope. And so what I'd like to do is close with a scripture that's pointing to our ultimate hope in our sometimes difficult journey of growing in godliness. For these words, we're gonna go back to the second letter of Peter. We're gonna go to 2 Peter chapter three. Peter is looking forward to the yet future day when Jesus will return and all evil will be done away with. Justice will finally come in its fullest extent through the return of Jesus. Listen to the words that are said. Peter calls this day that is still yet future. He calls it the day of the Lord. Listen to 2 Peter 3, beginning verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. The earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. And then Peter asked this question. Since then, everything will be destroyed in this way. What kind of people ought you to be? Well, let's look at the answer. You ought to live holy and godly lives. As you look forward to the day of God and speed, it's coming. That's an amazing concept, isn't it? That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But, and here's the hope, in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where godliness dwells in its fullest extent, where righteousness dwells. We look forward to that day. But today... For now, in this world where it's sometimes difficult to be godly, may we never forget that the secret to godliness is not just about us trying harder to be godly. The secret is looking at the story of Jesus, of worshiping Jesus more wholeheartedly, of loving Jesus more wholeheartedly, of allowing the character of Jesus to live through us in more and more of our actions as we, we become more and more like him. We want to take a moment to thank you for listening. And we invite you to join us on Sunday mornings in person or online. For more information about who we are and what's happening at the church, visit us online at centralbaptistchurch.ca. Thanks for listening to the Central Baptist Church Victoria podcast.